0: Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. As always, we are here in Lawfather Studios within Lawfather headquarters. And as always, special thanks to Radio Influence. A big shout out to all the shows on Radio Influence. Go ahead and check them all out. And check us out on social media, and those of you on Clubhouse, not really sure how it works, but uh, started it today, so if anybody's listening out there, uh, we have Clubhouse playing at the same time. From what I understand, there can actually be some interaction during uh, live broadcast on Clubhouse, so we'll give it a shot, see what happens, and go from there. All right, so let's get into the show today, and let's look at the intersection of sports and the legal world, okay, something that is seemingly very common. Uh, Okay, I shouldn't say very common, but it's common enough that I think we recognize it. Okay, those of you who have been to a professional baseball game have seen foul balls go into stands and kind of the aftermath of what can happen, right? And and there's no two, well, I shouldn't say there's no two foul balls, but foul balls into stands are not all created equal. All right. And so what you can have is you could have a pop up that kind of goes up in the air real high and comes down and lands in the stands, or you could have a line drive that's a hundred plus miles an hour shooting right into the stands. And you know it's a it's a really interesting thing because kind of growing up and as all of us who have followed baseball up until about five or six years ago the only nets at a baseball field were behind home plate and you may wonder why that is right and what you probably didn't know is the netting behind home plate is somewhat of a legal reason of having it okay um beyond just the practical of the fact that a foul ball going straight back, you have about no reaction time. Uh, think about a catcher, right? A catcher and umpire who are right there. How many times have you seen a catcher and umpire take a, a line drive straight back, uh, right in the face? Um, Probably there's worse places that the catchers generally get it, not the umpires. Although if you watch some blooper videos, there's some great ones of uh, catchers jumping out of the way of fastball. So go take a look at that. It'll uh, keep you entertained for hours. But anyway, what we come to is this. Baseball, being the national pastime, being that it's been around uh, since the 1800s, being that professional, baseball is the, from what I understand, the oldest professional sports league in the United States. Well, there are special rules, if you will, uh, for baseball, all right? There are two special rules that baseball follows, and this is somewhat where they intersect, okay? And you say, how do foul balls and special rules and special laws, how does that intersect with baseball? Well, two things. One baseball has what's called professional baseball that is major league baseball has an antitrust exemption all right what is that what is an antitrust exemption it's this you hear it when companies merge all the time there's the sec and the federal agencies will investigate mergers and what that is is we cannot have monopolies in this country. It is part of our laws that that monopolies in an industry can exist. It it comes down to capitalism and the ability for uh, people to have choice and for the market to dictate pricing and competition is good. Okay. That's the thought process behind it. And that's how we get to uh, antitrust. All right. And so why does baseball have an antitrust exemption? Well, that would be a a longer topic for another show. Um, But just know, especially for this purpose, for this show, baseball has an antitrust exemption. And the legislature, the United States legislature has allowed this antitrust exemption to exist for many, many, many years. That is why you don't really see any competition in professional baseball for a professional team, right? Yes, there's the minor leagues, but the minor leagues are affiliated with the major leagues, That's also another topic for another show. That's a real convoluted and, um, really it's not a great relationship right now, but there is a relationship between the two. So we don't have to worry about that. It's not a competing league. And then there's the independent leagues. They're more aligned with say minor. They're really kind of a step below minor league baseball. Um, a lot of times you'll have guys who have played what's called affiliated minor league baseball. And, um, yeah, you know what if they get released they'll go and play some independent ball but the antitrust exemption is why you don't see uh, a competing league that's why you don't see something like the xfl popping up to compete with major league baseball or um there was jason what was the name there was a, a league back in the day that the tampa bay bandits were a part of it the uh, usfl the usfl and the nfl um they were competing professional leagues, right? Because of the antitrust exemption, baseball can operate without any competition. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, we have the baseball rule. Yeah, we, you know, the law has a really funny way of making things that are really complicated, really a whole lot less complicated by calling it exactly what it is. Okay. And here is where baseball, the law, and personal injury all intersect with each other okay and i saw an article on this and, and it got me kind of thinking about it think about the times that you've seen fans get hit with a ball and in recent times there's been actually some kind of horrific uh times of fans getting hit with balls even bats and you uh, yeah we, we're more now we're looking at just the ball aspect to it a couple of kids have gotten hit over the past couple of years uh, There was a a gentleman, I believe it was on the West Coast, that got hit in the eye, and um, yeah, there's been there's two fans that have been killed by foul balls over the past, I think it's ten years, and you never see a lawsuit for it, and so I started thinking, and I and I had I had before researching this, I'd come to this conclusion, okay, that we don't see any lawsuits for it because, well, the teams go. We don't want bad press. We don't want to be a defendant in a lawsuit. So here's what we're going to do. If we have a fan that says they're hurt, we're going to go take care of them. And we're just going to settle it and make it a confidential settlement. That way nobody can know anything about it. And we move on. We get no bad press. There, This thing is in the news for about two seconds where it's on Center, and they're showing the person get hit by the ball. And we move on. Okay? That was my thought process of how... This came about and why we don't ever really see any lawsuits. Well, turns out I was wrong. Turns out, the reason? Baseball rule. All right, so let's look at this. From in 2019, there was a study done that there have been 808 fans that have reported being injured, okay? So keep in mind, we only know about the people who are injured who actually report those injuries. And so from 2012... 2019 that there have been 808 fans who have reported injuries okay um, and, and I'm looking here I, I don't think this is a correct stat but um, one of the stats that I found uh 2000 game related fatalities at baseball games from 1862 to 2014 uh, that seems high um, but that is a stat that that actually showed up online I' pretty sure that's not <laughs> pretty sure that's not accurate 2000 seems like a lot but that is a, a long time frame so what we're looking at is what responsibility does a team have and what responsibility does major league baseball have to protect its fans okay and up until recently there wasn't any here here's the thing here is the crazy part about it and here's where all of these concepts that I've talked about leading up to this point. Here's where they all come together. All right. You had way back in the day. Okay. Well, let's, let's take a step away from way back in the day and let's look at how laws are created. I know we've talked about it on this show before how laws are created, but laws are created in one of two ways. All right. You have laws that are created by the legislature. That's your statutory law. That is a, you can go look it up online and it says, what exactly the law is. That's statutory law. Then we have what's called case law. And case law is exactly what it says it is. Uh, And it's, like I said, the law sometimes just gives it to you bluntly. And what it is, you have a case, and that case is ruled on, and it goes generally to an appellate court, maybe it goes to a Supreme Court, to a state Supreme Court, maybe it goes to the US Supreme Court, depending on the case, all right? But they, it, depending on where it falls, it doesn't matter whether it's a state appeals court or a state supreme court or federal appeals court or a federal or the um, U.S. Supreme Court, which is federal, highest court in the land, highest court in the entire United States. When those courts make rulings, that is called case law. All right. So that is what the baseball rule is. Base, the baseball rule is case law. All right. And it dates back to 1913. And it it goes like this. There was a Missouri. It was a a state court of Missouri. A fan named Crane. He was hit by a foul ball. It was not Major League Baseball at the time. It was the American Association. And he sued the home team. They own the stadium. All right. So, So let's Think about that for a second. Major League Baseball doesn't own any of the stadiums. I don't know of any of the professional leagues that the league actually owns the stadium. So put them aside for a second. So whether it's the American Association or Major League Baseball or the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, doesn't matter for the most part. I can't think of a a scenario where any of these leagues actually own these stadiums. They're owned by either a separate entity. Those of you in Tampa, the Tampa Bay Bucks don't actually own Raymond James Stadium. All right. Uh, Raymond James. The company doesn't own Raymond James Stadium either. They're just naming rights. The Tampa Sports Authority owns Raymond James Stadium. All right. So um, you always have to know when you're looking at a lawsuit who you're suing and who, who is the proper person to sue. And we could go down a rabbit hole on that, but just by and large, no. We're going to go with the home team for for the most part. All right. So in 1913, Mr. Crane sued the Kansas City Blues for negligence. Hey, we're right back into personal injury because he got hit with a foul ball, and that team was negligent. And what the state court did at that time—it's really kind of interesting because you would think, okay, well, I got my ticket. On the back of my ticket, it says, "Hey." I'm responsible for watching out for foul balls, and uh, you know, I waive any rights and, and dangers and anything else. Well, that's not what we're going after because the reality is those waivers don't really mean a whole lot. They're, they're really very unenforceable, okay? So what we're looking at, there's this concept that if you're doing something that is so inherently dangerous and you get hurt, no negligence by another person Can can really be a cause for your injuries. The textbook example in law school, somebody using a chainsaw, somebody cutting down a tree, right? You cut down a tree and you're using that chainsaw and something happens to you, the person using the chainsaw, guess what? It's an inherently dangerous activity. Now, you're using the chainsaw, you drop that tree on somebody's head, you have a whole nother problem there, right? Completely different. But you're the one, the person using the chainsaw is accepting. That risk, okay? So think about it like that. that. That is the textbook law school example that comes up, right? Well, the state court in Missouri, 1913, used that same thought process. And they determined that the dangers of being at a baseball game, that is common knowledge, that it, it's commonly known that if you're at a baseball game, you could get hit with a ball and get hurt. And because you knew that, you accepted that risk. Just like the person using the chainsaw accepts the risk of using a chainsaw, a dangerous instrument. You accepted that risk, right? You accepted that risk when you put that chainsaw in your hands and started it up and cut down that tree. Well, by purchasing your ticket and going to a game, this Missouri court said, hey, it's the same. Think about that. You're a fan. In the stands, you clearly don't have the same abilities that the guys on the field did, right? Most fans played the game at some point or wanted to play the game at some point, right? And, and at some point, you either lack the ability, the skill, you get hurt, right? But you can't do it. You're not at the same level. But we're saying if you're sitting there, you accept that risk you accept that risk of getting hit with a foul ball. Okay? 1913. Now, um, the dead ball era in baseball was somewhat around that time. I believe uh, this was before Babe Ruth, right? Um, So, and, and what the dead ball era of baseball was, the ball didn't really travel all that fast. Hits weren't all that hard. Okay? It's not the same. It was not the same game as it is now. I don't think you had guys throwing in the nineties. I don't know what God, no one knew what exit velocity was. Heck I played college ball from what? 0, 001 to 05. We didn't have exit velocity and launch angles and all of this. And guess what? We didn't have a stock of guys you know, on our pitching staff. And you know, I played D1 at Western Carolina, and then I was at University of Tampa. And, you know, I threw mid to upper 80s, and I threw the slowest in the D1 program that I was at. But no one threw above 95, okay? At University of Tampa, is a little different right? Because it, you know, D2, it was just, it was a little different. And I and I think coaching staffs had different philosophies, right? At, when I was at Western Carolina, the emphasis was on hard throwing guys. Whereas in the Tampa program, much different philosophy. Hey, Tampa's got a, a better program. Having seen the two, Tampa's got the better of the two. Uh, I, I'd take my odds, uh, Tampa over Western Carolina in a three game series any day. But anyway, we digress. Um, it's just a different game. Guys throw harder now. All right. So I, I bring up that 01 to 05 to get into guys throw harder now. Right. And if guys are throwing harder, balls are coming off the bat a whole lot harder. So think about that. So we have a case from 1913 in the dead ball era where. My guess is, because obviously I wasn't alive, and Jason, who's sitting here with me, well, he wasn't alive then either. Um, So none of us really know, and I don't think they had radar guns back then. So how fast were these guys throwing? It's anybody's guess, but if history tells us anything, we know that they were not throwing as hard as guys are today, right? Put this in a little bit of perspective. When Nolan Ryan was playing, I believe he was about the only guy to hit 100 uh, as a pitcher. Now, uh, I don't know, there's probably... 10, 12, 13 guys in the majors right now. Not to mention, there's got to be a handful of guys in the minors that throw 100 and just can't find the plate, right? And think about that. That's a little bit of a scary thought. You get a guy throwing 100 and can't find the plate. You want to put your head there? Um, Anyway, so the game is different. but, But even though the game was slower, the court said, you took on that risk. It's all yours, right? You, as a fan, took on that risk. Now, Missouri, apparently... In the early 1900s, people only got hit with balls in Missouri (laughs) because um, our second piece of case law comes also from Missouri and from a fan getting hit in Missouri. But the baseball rule that we talked about before was born out of this crane case. So we take that crane case, and this this is the difference between case law and statutory law. Statutory law is what it is. It cannot be changed unless the legislatures change it, or if case law interprets it, right? So if a statute is vague, case law can interpret it and, and modify it slightly. And then eventually sometimes you'll see that the legislature will come in and they'll change the statute to make it more clear, right? Um, we saw some of that recently with some of the PIP law, potential changes in Florida, um, Some of that was going to be uh, changed from case law into statutory. But anyway, case law is ever-evolving. Any case can come through and start to chip away at case law. can start to change case law. So in the same year, 1913, same state, Missouri, we have a second case that comes up. And this fan, Mr. Edling, Charles Edling, was at a Blues game. This team, man, they're having a rough time this year, that year. 1913 was a rough time for the Blues. Uh, the Blues were singing the Blues in 1913. And Mr. Edling was sitting behind home plate. And there was a screen. So at that time, they at least had the foresight to put a net in front of home plate. And, hey, guess what? A ball got through a hole in the screen. What are the odds, right? Hole in the screen, ball gets through, hits him, hurts him. Uh, he sued the team and won. Okay, so in our first case, Crane lost, which was what created the baseball rule. And what the court said was, hey, you, you, you take on that risk. So Crane lost, creating the baseball rule. So seemingly, Edling had no chance, right, except for that pesky little hole in the net. Okay, so what the court said was that the, that the teams, the owner of the stadium— has a duty of care to protect fans, okay? And they need to maintain that protection, and they need to to keep it, and by maintain it, it, meaning that you have to keep it in working order. You can't have holes in it, okay? So you would go, hey, that's a win for all the fans. They have a duty of care to protect fans. Well, but guess what? Because, hey, it's the national pastime. It's the early 1900s. So think about some of the videos and pictures you've seen of the early 1900s. Baseball was it. Okay, baseball was the thing. That's, that is when the national pastime was born, right? Now, being in 2021, it may be a little different, but it's still national pastime, right? So we're going to say the teams have a duty of care to protect these fans, and they have to maintain that protection. But... They only have to do it for the fans seated in the most dangerous areas of the ballpark. That's it. Most dangerous areas of the ballpark. What does that mean? Well, with most things in the law, it could mean a whole lot of anything. And I think in 1913, the prevailing thought was the most dangerous area of the ballpark was directly behind home plate. Your, your opportunity to react is about zero. Okay. It really is. Um, A lot of times you'll see – you could actually kind of see it sometimes when you're watching a game. You'll see a ball get hit straight back. That ball will have already hit the net and gone through, and then you'll see somebody flinch, right? Um, It just – it takes time to react. And don't forget, as I mentioned, the fans aren't high-level athletes, right? I mean, think about this. You have pitchers who are, what, by the time they release the ball, they start off 60 feet, 6 inches. By the time they release the ball – 51, 52, somewhere in that general range, maybe 53 feet away from the batter, all right? And they sometimes get hit with balls. And we're talking about guys who are the best of the best, should have the best reflexes. Um, You know, it it happened, I was watching a game last night. Um, Adovano with the Red Sox got, took one, took a liner off the shoulder, all right? So we're saying fans have to have that same reaction time, which... To me, I kind of find crazy. Right. Um, But that's, that's what it is. So we have these two Missouri cases and look, here's how case law works. Right. If I'm, if I'm working a case in real life, like I do, I go and research cases and I'm trying to find cases in my district court of appeals. Right. So depending on where it is. So if I'm in Hillsborough County, which is where Tampa is in, I'm looking for the second DCA And, and I'm looking for rulings there. Now, if I can't find anything that matches what my fact pattern is, I'll go to other district courts of appeals in the state. But let's say this, right? Let's say I have something from the second DCA, the second district court of appeals, and it says one thing and it's bad for me. And I go and I look at the fifth district court of appeals and it has something that says it's good for me. Well, guess what? I still lose because my, my own district where my case is in, it rules, right? That is the rule of law for that area. So, and we see this, there's, um, there's a concept that we follow uh, and it has to do with the PIP law and it has to do with car crashes that in the second DCA, if the person doesn't have personal injury protection coverage, for whatever reason, it really doesn't matter. The second DCA says that the insurance company, uh, they don't get to take what's called an offset on it. They don't get to subtract out that $10,000. In South Florida, guess what? It's the exact opposite. Okay. The insurance company, when we're going after the defendant can actually account for that $10,000 that was never truly paid. All right. Um, That's a little little aside on that but that's how that works so what you would have is that there's these rulings over time that have really advanced this baseball rule from 1913 to now that have pointed to those Missouri cases and the other states and other jurisdictions have adopted those state cases in Missouri as their own so kind of a weird and interesting thing but Things are starting to change. Uh, Recently, at one of the recent winter meetings, Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, had taken it upon himself to discuss this with the owners and to talk about the need for protecting fans and the recommendations after a study was done that the netting needs to be extended. That's going to become very, very important. All right. So here's where it becomes important is that Remember, the other states don't have to follow this Missouri law, all right? So what you have is a judge in California in a court of appeals is trying to change that baseball rule and saying that, hey, those protections, they're outdated. And that appeals court sent that case back down to the trial court and said, hey, you have to answer these questions because what this justice said was that Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, he contradicted the baseball rules assertion that fans are primarily accountable for their own safety when in 2019, in the winter meetings, he said Major League Baseball clubs could do more to protect the fans. So by acknowledging that the teams have the ability to do something, he's now changed the potential for the legal standard to change. Or he's allowed for the legal standard to potentially change. He may have and look, probably a smart guy, but you know sometimes even smart people don't necessarily know the legal ramifications of the things they do or say, right? He may have shifted the responsibility for protection from the fans to protect themselves to the teams. Okay? Think about that. And, and I, you know, I can tell you this: I'm at a game. I don't want to catch a hundred mile an hour line drive, right? I take my kids to the games. I, I just I don't want to do it. I playing ball. I when I was at Western Carolina, we had a freshman. He was about six four, six five. You know, we came in together as freshmen, and we were throwing partners. Big, tall, lanky righty who threw the mid threw in the mid nineties. He was my throwing partner. Okay, so I've caught mid nineties. About every day, Um, I'm pretty sure my pointer finger on my left hand is permanently numb from uh, catching balls sometimes in the palm. It happens. And I had a glove on. Guess what? It hurt a little bit, right? Um, I can't imagine catching that barehanded, right? At a game, ball coming even harder than that. It's just not something that I want to have to worry about, right? And not only that we're playing catch. We're watching each other, right? There's no distractions. Uh, maybe, you know, people on, you know, running around the intramural field when we would uh, play long toss uh, in the off season and on some of the intramural fields. But anyway, that would be about the only distraction. But think about it. You're at a game, right? You have your kids with you. You ever gone to a game with a, you know, four five, six-year-old? They're kind of all over the place, they want food. They want popcorn. They want cotton candy. Oh, you got the cotton candy guy. Hey, cotton candy guy, let me get some. Okay. I got to go pay that guy. I got to go watch him. Oh, but if I'm watching him, I'm not watching every single pitch, right? Oh, yo, know, my kid's trying to eat something off the ground at Tropicana Field. Good God, please don't, right? So I got to go stop him. And what am I doing? I'm not watching every single pitch, right? So it's different. It's different for a fan for a lot of reasons, okay? So, you know, I I think it's an important thing. There's been a lot of serious injuries and some teams have done some things, okay? And they have most of the teams, all of the teams have extended the netting to the dugouts. Uh some of them have extended it further down. Some are saying that there's architectural issues that prevent it, which I you know, that's that's potentially possible, but um there is a US senator that's looking into this, okay? So This is where we bring it all back full circle. And we're going to bring it all back to the antitrust exemption. So what happens typically is when the legislators want to do something with Major League Baseball, get them to do something the way they want to do it, they will dangle that carrot of the antitrust exemption and saying, hey, you play ball with us, us legislators, okay? And we'll let you keep your antitrust exemption. Now, from what I can tell, they're not quite there yet. They're they're trying to work with Major League Baseball and trying to work with some of the teams and get an understanding of the whys. Why are we not extending nets, right? Look, the netting, it's not a big deal. I've been to games that you've seen it. And look, the seats behind the home plate, most expensive seats in the house, right? And guess what? Since the 1900s, maybe even before that, you've watched it through a net, okay? So... It, really important thing, and um, I, I think it's something that we're going to see change in our lifetime. And I, I want to want to kind of end with this, and I'm, and I'm finding it because it, it just came out. Um, came out just last night after I had put some of this together. But there was a toddler who was hit by a foul ball in uh, at the Houston Astros Park, and sitting in a spot where most likely – that's would be now um or if they were extended where they're asking for them to be extended to that this toddler would not have been hit but it fractured her skull and on last so it's monday right now just for those of you keeping track um so if you listen to it later on because i don't have exact dates here but last thursday so friday saturday sunday monday um Well, three days because it settled on Sunday, apparently, or the news broke on Sunday. Lawsuit was filed Thursday. The girls' family and the team reached an agreement um, sometime between Thursday and Sunday evening. Okay. So we are seeing the tides change some. Um, Major League Baseball has actually been added as a defendant in some cases, and um Some of those have been allowed. Uh, Why we haven't ever really seen lawsuits is they've been dismissed uh, in the past because of the baseball rule. But because of Manfred's comments at the 2019 winter meetings, we're seeing some of that case law possibly changing. Um, But I'll tell you what, there's there's two cases in Chicago. And one of them was from a Cubs game. One of them was from a White Sox game. So two different areas of town. So I don't know if that changes where, who the judges are, but anyway, one judge for the Cubs one dropped the suit against the Cubs, but allowed the part of the suit that involved major league baseball to continue. Uh, The one involving the White Sox, the judge has allowed both the suit against the club and the suit against major league baseball to continue. so, that is the baseball rule, and it may be changing, and it may be changing for the better. Um, look, I do I love nets? No. Do I think it's probably necessary because of where the game is at today and how fast and how hard foul balls come into the stands? Yeah, it, it's probably not a terrible idea. All right. So that is the baseball rule and how it interplays and turns out. You know, it's pretty much personal injury case through and through. So that is that part of it let's get into a listener question now. I know uh, we haven't had one of these in a while. We've been kind of going back and forth, some longer shows and doing different things, but listener question for today, is it worth getting a lawyer for a minor car accident? Which is a great question, right? And the answer is this, it's generally a good idea to get a lawyer no matter what, right? Um, it just is. It just, it gives you options. Just because you hire a lawyer doesn't mean you have to go all the way through to a trial and a jury and everything else, right? So what it is, is it it's a protection, right? It gives you that ability to make decisions later on because a lot of what happens in a car crash, you need to start getting stuff immediately. And this allows you, you hire a lawyer right on the outset, really get to start putting these pieces together right away and, and that's the important thing the longer you let something go the harder it is right and it, it's really important to get checked out for your injuries pretty much right away right the, the moment you start hurting you should get them checked out now why is that because it, it's a little bit different than what some of us may typically do and and myself included i you know work out a lot, I get banged up a decent amount. And I, I just kind of let it go and I let it go and I let it go and I let it go. And you know, six weeks will go by and they'll still be nagging and, you know, try to change some things up. But when you're in a car crash and you're dealing with an insurance company, they don't deal in real life. They deal in a fantasy world. And for them, that six weeks that most of us might go, Yeah, I just want to see what happens. They're going to come back and go you really weren't that hurt because you waited six weeks to go see the doctor. Well, the reality is maybe you were that hurt. Maybe you just tried to change things up and see if it resolved itself, but it didn't. But to that insurance company, to them, if you don't go right away to see a doctor, you're not that hurt, okay? And look, in a minor car accident, you can actually get decently hurt, right? So, and look, it doesn't have to be you know, oh, I lost my arm and I, it's a million-dollar case. No, right? But here's the reality. You have this big eight-pound bowling ball sitting on top of your spine, right? And it moves all around, right? And, and you got your spine here and you got this, this big bowling ball on top of it and your spine's not all that big, right? And you get hit from behind and it throws that bowling ball forward and back and forward and what's happening your brain's going forward and back and all the muscles in your neck are doing the same thing and it's flexing and the discs in between your vertebrae they're moving all around because it's flexing and if it flexes too much it's going to pop it out and it can push on your nerve and create all these other issues okay but you won't know that unless you go see a doctor and if you wait that insurance company is going to say, well, you really weren't that hurt. Oh, well, you know what? You probably did it. You waited six weeks. You waited two months. You probably hurt it while you were working out. It probably wasn't from this car crash, right? Especially in a minor car crash, you're going to go, hey, it wasn't that bad. You probably did it. You were pulling weeds. You probably did it while you were pulling weeds. Okay. So is it worth getting a lawyer? Absolutely. And here's the thing. When you're working in a personal injury case, Generally speaking, it's on a contingency fee, right? Which means you don't have to pay that lawyer unless they're successful for you. So is it worth it? Yes, absolutely. It's always worth having somebody on your side because contrary to popular belief, your insurance company is not on your side, okay? They're actually trying to pay you as little money as possible. It's Really kind of interplay here, right? Really interesting interplay. They want to charge you as much as possible, And they want to pay you as little as possible. So keep that in mind. I can tell you, I've had several cases that have been small, minor impact car crash cases that a person has actually legitimately been really hurt. The injuries didn't necessarily manifest themselves immediately as being bad, Um, but they have been. So, um, I have seen that I have dealt with many clients who have had that and they have been very thankful in the end that they started the process and they got into the right doctors and they had the money at the end to be able to see doctors into the future to help take care of what is most likely going to be a recurring problem over time. All right. So that is the law father's take on whether or not it's worth it to get a lawyer for a minor car crash accident. I thank you for the listener question. Please, as always, keep them coming in. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Maybe if I ever get this whole clubhouse thing figured out, maybe there as well. And that is the Lawfather Show for today, right from Lawfather Headquarters. Once again, a big thank you to Radio Influence for taking the time and uh, allowing me to talk about the baseball rules. All right.